three, two, one. <laughs> what? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a reason. Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with some of these people. I just, put down your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, uh, would you rather? Right, trust me, take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. Hello, namaste, shalom, and welcome to Nervous Habits episode 12. I'm your host, Ricky Rosen, and essentially this is a podcast about, well, just about everything, ranging from psychology to dating to nutrition to philosophy and so much more. This week, we'll be discussing some highly fascinating topics, including education. What are the biggest issues plaguing our education system today, and what should we be teaching kids in schools today that we're just not doing? Sleep. What do we know about why we need to sleep, and how much sleep do we really need every night? And finally, politics. Who are the frontrunners for the Democratic nomination in 2020, and what do the Democrats need to do to unseat President Trump? All that and so much more on this very special episode of... Nervous Habits. Send those emails in, guys, to nervoushabitspodcast.gmail.com, nervoushabitspodcast.gmail.com. Of course, last week we had um, some really outstanding comments and questions uh, from a couple of our listeners. So keep it coming. Love interacting with you guys. Love hearing you know your thoughts and opinions on these topics. Um, also, follow us on Instagram if you haven't already, at nervoushabitspodcast. Um, and if you want, you know, really appreciate rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Um, would love to, you know, see your thoughts and up for the the constructive criticism. Maybe there's something that you know I haven't talked about that you want to hear. You know, um, hear my my take on uh, whether that be psychological or, or dating or something in politics or you know sociology. Feel free to you know uh, share that with me, Instagram, email, or on Apple Podcasts. This week, I am actually joined by a very special guest. Um, it's taken me till the 11th episode to get this guy in the recording studio, but um, I do have my longtime friend here with me, my partner in crime, the Doug Stamper to my Frank Underwood, the Ren to my Stimpy, the Jim Riggleman to my Mickey Calloway, uh, the Seth to my Danny. No one else will get that besides us. Uh, Mr. Adam Michael Rabinowitz. Adam, welcome to Nervous Habits. Yeah, thank you for having me, Ricky. Really excited to be on Nervous Habits today. Um, Adam and I actually, we have a long history. We've been friends almost a decade, went to college together, lived together almost every year. And we actually had a radio show called Sports with Brick Rab that in many ways, you know, ignited my my love for radio and my foray into this this scene. So it's only fitting that, you know, Adam comes on the podcast um, and, you know, talks about these these pertinent issues um, with with me this week. So Adam, uh, you right now, you are an educational consultant at um, a company called Collaborative Communications. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So if you were kind of to explain to a five-year-old, you know, what your job is just as we go into these topics in education and politics today, how would you, how would you kind of kind of frame that? How would you craft that? Yeah, uh, basically I work with nonprofits, advocacy organizations, and school districts across the country to help them advance their education impact goals and create an education system where all students can succeed. Yeah, and, and this guy's a, a pretty humble. After graduating from Brian S. with me, he went on to Brown University to get his uh, master's in public administration. So he knows what he's talking about. I know you guys, you know, hear some of my opinions, uh, armchair physician over here, but um, Adam certainly, you know, you should, you know, you, you should definitely take his, um, you know, uh, respect where he's coming from because he has the background, the expertise, having worked in the field for what two, three years now. Three years now, going on three years. Three yeah. years. Now, now we feel old. We we got our uh, five year reunion coming yeah. up. Brandeis. 
Um, so, uh, as I said, you know, we're going to dive in, uh, beginning with a topic on education and kind of to set the scene before we talk about, you know, what specific issues are plaguing the education system and, and how we can remedy that. Adam, I want to get uh, just a, your general impression. What would you say, as a starting point for this conversation, are the one or two biggest issues um, facing the, the, you know, education system in America today? Yeah, well, the first thing really is creating an education system that benefits all learners. Uh, And, you know, we used to think of American education just strictly as the public school, as a bedrock of uh, American education and society. But now you have all these different education options. You have private schools, you have charter schools, you have homeschools, online programs, and etc. So how to create a system where students can essentially select the education pathway that best fits their interests and needs as well as uh you know what's in their communities and the uh jobs and economic needs of that community so right now it's navigating that we want to make sure we're preserving the public school as just that bedrock of society but there are a whole lot of other options of schools essentially right now so how to navigate that and to make sure they're high quality that's number one i mean you hear a lot about school choice and vouchers and things like that and that's really getting into we have the public school and then all these other education options uh the other is equity right now we have a ever-growing achievement gap in our country uh right now you know white students in suburban uh, neighborhoods for example more affluent communities have a far greater prospect of a realizing success both in college and career and then you have minorities and other uh, disadvantaged populations that are struggling to achieve those same goals and they're disadvantaged right from birth on so it's bridging that achievement gap and not doing it in high school but doing it as early as uh, birth mm. so equity and school choice I, I think both of those are 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 really important issues that we're gonna we're gonna touch on in a moment in more depth and just generally speaking I mean if you know, just to magnify the importance of this discussion on education, if you look at any issue that we're facing in society, whether it be you know climate, you know uh, long-term climate prospects, or um, you know you look at like gun violence, or you know you look at national security, our relations with foreign countries, really education is you said the, the bedrock of society. It's it's the lens through which future generation generations will learn about these issues and how important they are. So that's why I think in many ways this is um, you know. It, I think remedying our education system is the key to alleviating many of these issues in making sure that the next generation, you know, the millennials and, and you know, folks after us are equipped to dealing with that. Would you, would you agree with that sentiment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, education is, is critical to helping students achieve the skills that our workforce needs today. I mean, that's another big issue in education in general is preparing our students for the workforce of tomorrow. Mm. Uh, so... Is the current school curriculum appropriately structured to help students achieve those tech-oriented jobs? Those jobs, quite frankly, that we don't even know about. There's this really interesting statistic. Uh, Essentially, in the next five years, uh, 60% of the jobs that students will enter, we don't even know about yet. Really? So uh, it's – and that's a challenge in education is being able to create a curriculum that positions students for – quite frankly, jobs that are emerging as we speak at a rapid pace. So, mm. uh, you know, creating, again, that continuum of providing a career-focused education uh, from as early as birth to 16, uh, grade 16, I should say, and beyond even. Uh, yeah. You know, how do we 
equip them with those 21st century skills, collaboration, creativity, critical thinking, logical reasoning. It's not just about those core subjects. Mm -hmm. It's also about creating other opportunities to build just those general skills that you or I demonstrate in the workplace and probably gain through college, but how to do that even earlier and to do it more deliberately. For sure. And and that, that's, that is interesting. You said 60% of the, the jobs, we don't even know what they are. I think when you look at the future of automation and artificial intelligence, um, where where the need, where people's needs are or where the industry's needs are. Mm-hmm. Like right now, a lot of the jobs that are performed by, you know, folks like you and me could be machine, um, you know, machine automated. So then, you know, then you're going to need people in programming and people who can actually maintain those systems, um, you know, information security, things like that. Um, so that's that's important when we when we get to our discussion of uh, structuring curriculums a little later. A couple things I want to touch on and get your take on um, in terms of large general issues plaguing the education system. Right now, you hear a lot about teaching to the test. I think that certainly, you know, what you see is kids are learning, you know, what exactly what they need in order to do well on the exams. For us, we both grew up in New York, um, both from Long Island, having taken the the, the Regents every year um, in you know math, right. yeah, math way way back when, math, science, social studies, um, English, foreign language, and the AP exams. What ha- what happens is you know children are learning exactly what they need, you know, to do well on the test, and then they're almost unlearning they're forgetting the information it's it's like layered on top of, of each other and then um removed you know use and disuse by the previous uh you know by by whatever was learned next and and you know sequentially like that so do you, would you uh prioritize that as, as a major issue when we look at um you know how like holistically how we're evaluating the education system teaching to the test yeah two things to that one To your point, uh, we actually, one of the bigger issues in education as well, again, particularly for those students that don't have access to enrichment opportunities after school lets out in June in the summer, uh, you have this well-documented issue called the summer slide. Uh, And this actually applies to children across all demographics and socioeconomic groups, but basically the idea that students can lose up to six to nine months of their math or English learning gains in the course of two months. Mm, Uh, And you consider, you know, those who are privileged to go to the summer enrichment opportunity, the summer camp, where you're not only just having fun, but also, uh, you know, doing some academic enrichment, creative arts, things like that, where you're being challenged and your skills are reinforced, a lot of kids don't have opportunities to do that. So that's uh, a bigger struggle just to speak to your point of how to preserve and build on learning gains. Teachers struggle with the idea of teaching to the test all the time. Mm -hmm. And there are actually experiments in the field about new approaches to assessment. So that standard end of year test we call summative assessment's been a kind of relic of time Mm -hmm. uh, and previous generations upon previous generations have undergone it. And this just core curriculum Now you're seeing a lot of experimentation about how do we, A, empower teachers, and I'm sure we'll get to this in the podcast, is how to create that supportive structure for teachers where, uh, quite frankly, it's one of the most difficult professions in the country. So how do you empower them to structure a curriculum that speaks to their students' needs and also gives them that autonomy uh, at the forefront of the classroom? But in doing so, there are opportunities to leverage what students are learning, quite frankly, every day outside of the school walls, whether at your local museum, whether at uh, for older kids, a workforce training program or things like that, but to provide and align with uh, what you need to achieve in the classroom and achieve in career, as we talked about, creating those experiential or external learning opportunities after school, but also aligning it. So partnering with businesses, partnering with 
community-based organizations and other institutions to align education with what your community needs and mm-hmm. creating those project-based learning opportunities, which are demonstrated to increase in engagement and interest in learning and things like that. So quite frankly, and to be uh, kind of sum it up, there are a lot of opportunities to expand the definition of learning and to create a learning environment where the kids of the future are not just taking a test at the end of the year, right. but have multiple opportunities to, uh, you know, be measured by success and such. Yeah. And when you talk about the summer slide and alternatives to standardized tests, I, I think you raise, you raise a really interesting point is our focus on standardized testing is, is highly problematic because if you think about how we demonstrate learning, I mean, I don't know about you, but having, you know, three or four or five uh, multiple choice question responses, I don't see that as an a- adequate measure of a student's knowledge or understanding, especially for these nuanced issues that have multiple dimensions of interpretation. You know, I, I would I would um, prefer, as someone who's been through it um, and, and someone who's looking at this this issue, short response questions or essay questions. But again, you look at the, the state tests, the national exams, and it's it's all multiple choice. I don't know about you. I struggled highly with, with multiple choice questions, even in the classes that I did the best in. Probably because I overthink things like crazy. You know, I, I see a multiple choice question and I think it could be C, it could be D, maybe, you know, I, I could see. And then I'm arguing with my professor about different, um, you know, uh, about the, how it could fit into more than one slot. So I, I see when we look at the issues plaguing education, I see the, the, the one size fits all approach to standardized testing as also a, a major issue. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, again, speaks to what tests actually accomplish. So if students are simply providing a answer to a basic subject matter question, you know, this mathematical problem, this critical reading passage, and then being able to, you know, dissect what the main idea is or identify a topic sentence or things like that, uh, or even just simple scientific concepts. Sure, it's important to know that, but those aren't the competencies and the skills that you need to be successful in this 21st century environment. So how do we structure assessment opportunities? I measure collaboration, how you're able to work in within a group, <coughs> critical thinking, how you're able to not just address that multiple choice question, but also think very constructively and be able to provide a rationale for why mm-hmm. something is happening. So prioritizing the why rather than the what. And that's huge. I want to make sure we emphasize that, prioritizing the why rather than the what. So in mathematics, I mean, understanding um, the in quadratic equations, I don't know how, how fresh that is for you, but like y equals mx plus b is, is the line for uh, I'm tra- I'm tra- like a linear, like a, a uh, like a, the line, the m is the x mx is the slope v is the y-intercept so understanding why mx is the slope instead of just what the slope is and it speaks to your point right now i mean have you used this concept after grade school i guess when you first learned it i'm shaking my head no (laughs) would it have been more valuable to instead uh there might have been some mathematical oriented issue but you're doing it in an applied context for maybe as part of a apprenticeship or something where you're helping a a business address some quantitative matter or something like that. That's where education is heading. So rather than think about the stand and deliver method of a teacher is in front of a array of desks in a classroom teaching students, instead to create these applied experiential learning opportunities and to be able to measure how students are working in groups. What's the critical thinking approach that they're using? Uh, how inventive they may be and mm-hmm. what their approach to innovation is, for example, and creativity is so important in our uh, society today, especially as we shift, school used to speak to a factory line in 
model, pretty much, where you're preparing students with this core set of skills to be able to operate as a cog in a system. Now you have this multiplicity of careers and, quite frankly, the reconfiguration of the workplace where it's not just your standard 9-to-5 desk job, but you're exploring and experimenting in a whole variety of contexts. So how do we align school to that new vision for our workforce? Absolutely. I think I think that there's no easy answer to that question because th- that involves a number of different factors at the the school level at the fe- state and federal level po- po- it affects policies you know how we're crafting our curriculums um, so for sure I think that's something that that you know policymakers need to be taking more seriously in considering that and on that note Adam I mean I think another issue that we should discuss is just the the grandiose expectations we're placing on students today I think that you know there's this film called The Race to Nowhere you've probably seen it like four times <laughs> I watched it in college a documentary series and it really uh, beautifully depicts the pressures that you know the the modern student are expected to um, to, to bear those burdens I mean you have a five to six hour work day you have uh, piles on piles of homework tutoring extracurricular activities community service for many a part-time job to support themselves and this takes a physical an emotional and a mental toll on many students so I think you know how how can we grapple with that as um, you know, future, hopefully future leaders. Um, and is this something that, you know, folks should be taking more seriously? I definitely think it is important, especially accounting for, as I mentioned earlier, some of those particularly disadvantaged students that are juggling uh, multiple experiences at home that are adverse and create trauma, uh, the economic pressures that some students face, balancing jobs, taking care of family members, etc., and being able to understand and account for those needs. Right now, actually, there's a statistic that shows about 50% of students today in America bring trauma to the classroom, which wow. is documented to you know adversely affect learning experiences, adversely affect engagement. You have food insecurity where students uh, go hungry, <coughs> where they don't have a stable home to be at, uh, again, where families are you know, struggling paycheck to paycheck. Uh, that's at one end of the continuum, and that you know is particularly pressing and helps reinforce this achievement gap. But you even have students on the other end of the spectrum where uh, probably quite relevant given the <laughs> Operation Varsity Blues uh, scandal that we heard about last month. Yeah, uh, right, Bad cre- Becky. Right, <laughs> but creating these such systematic pressures for students. You have to do this, 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 and that to get into the college of your choice, which leads to the career of your dreams, etc. So stepping ladder never ends. Right. And, you know, we're seeing this earlier and earlier. I mean, even a decade ago, over a decade ago, <laughs> at this point where we were navigating this process, started in 10th or 11th grade. Now you're having it start in middle school. Uh, which is significant. And uh, one other thing I want to know, it's actually an issue I've been working in quite a bit recently, is structuring, you have middle schools, which are kind of this forgotten part of the continuum. Uh, You know, structuring middle schools in a way that speaks to what students are going through developmentally. Mm. So creating environments that respect the physical changes that students are undergoing, cognitive experiences that challenge the potential that that students have and you know the multiple neural connections that are forming and things like that and also creating these social emotional contexts to help students develop healthy relationships so there are a lot of ways that we can be more deliberate in supporting our students kind of across the continuum and i want to make sure i adequately address a point adam just made about the achievement gap because he said that you know a lot of these kids what'd you say more than 50 percent of kids bring trauma into the classroom about 50 percent. so you have to understand i mean that this is a serious issue that kids kids are going hungry you know kids are, are in communities 
um, that are, are riddled with drug and, and you know gang violence and um, how is a kid supposed to be able to to learn about pre-calculus or you know 19th century European relations when you know they haven't eaten in two days or when you know they're they're worried about the you know domestic violence at home this is this is a, and I really think it makes it makes it makes you kind of understand you, you know your um, your perspective and, and for for a lot of these kids um, how how blessed they are to be in communities that don't have to deal with those issues but as you said 50% that's that's extraordinary yeah no it, it's a serious issue that's unaddressed I mean just your disbelief at that statistic it's not well known actually uh, I've been working with several researchers to help amplify that finding and how to create classrooms that are uh, trauma responsive so yeah. to speak and uh, you know those traumas broadly apply across all facets of society and for all students regardless of income uh, geography socioeconomic status etc but i will say the race to nowhere is really talking about the, those upper class you know very privileged kids you know like the 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 folks in uh trying to get into usc or, or what you say varsity blues operation the, varsity Blues. you know the, yeah. the children of celebrity like those kind of kids who Obviously, their problems are nothing compared to you know the, the ones we're talking about responding to trauma. But those kids who are are working, as you said, like climbing the ladder, balancing all these things, and and the question generally that that you know we're kind of grappling with is is you know what are we doing to our children? Like you know the expectations that we're putting on them to juggle all this, build you know a, a diverse resume, get straight A's, get into an amazing college, get into a great graduate school or law school. I mean, it's taking its toll on, you know, the the mental and emotional makeup, and I'm sure very physically as well, on these kids. So is there a way to alleviate this? I mean, is it parents, you know, uh, being more supportive of, of children? Is it better messaging from teachers? Is it more support for students at schools? You understand what I'm asking? Yeah, I get it. Uh, I mean, ways to accomplish this, I'm probably jumping around here to other uh, parts of the education segment, but one is alleviating the increasing pressures that teachers have. Uh, teachers, in addition to just serving their traditional role, are doubling as social workers, case managers, mm -hmm. and as uh, you see in state legislatures across the country, making increasing arrays of cuts uh, to other support resources, so counselors and other staff across the school building, teachers are being asked to do more. Mm -hmm. And teachers need that support. They need that resource. Uh, and we need to do it for students. So creating the dedicated funding and resources to expand those school support staffs are incredibly important. Uh, two, again, to think about uh, as a teacher approaches a particularly stressful situation, they receive the professional development to not, you know, simply a student is misbehaving, scream at them to get detention, and it just alienates and displaces them from the education system, but to have the tactics and resources to recognize when it, there might be a more systemic issue at play, and to, again, be able to connect them with the support network in the school building to create that uh, supportive infrastructure for students and i'm glad you brought that up adam because i think and and this is this is the last issue i want to i want to mention before we pivot to curriculum um i think the single greatest problem plaguing the education system has to do with um with teachers which would as you said which, which how how we're undervaluing and underpaying and underappreciating teachers relative to other professions in america and relative to teaching in other countries i mean this is something that um my education studies mentor at brandeis spoke about quite a bit she used to say um that the philosophy in america is if you can do if you can't mm -hmm. teach you know education has become a stepping stone for many people in their careers 
Um, we know this from experience, but organizations like Teach for America um, have exacerbated this by taking high-achieving college graduates and placing them at charter schools and underprivileged communities for two years. And then um, most of these participants will then go on to law school or medical school or grad school. So they're looking at teaching in America as something to do before you really want to do you know, what you want to do. So you know, Adam, as you know, uh, teaching is just as important, if not more important, than any other job that people are tasked with. I mean, I mean can you think of a job on par with teachers or, or more important than teachers? Well, I'll give you one just based on the stresses that they undergo. Teachers experience the equivalent amount of stress in a given day to an emergency room physician. So we should be putting them on par with our lawyers, our doctors, and other leaders of society. But right now they're, to your point, kind of marginalized as a secondary profession, a consolation prize of sorts. And let's get into the numbers on that. I mean, in 2019, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, I'm going to keep put all these the stats in the detail section for you. The average starting salary for a teacher in America is $38,617. And the average salary in general for any teacher is $58,950. So we're paying a starting teacher $38K. And in general, you know, if you've been teaching for five years or for 30 years, you're making on average 58K. And, you know, you have to understand those numbers vary based on geographic location. They're higher in, in you know, cities like New York than they are in, you know, Midwestern areas like Montana. Um, but teachers earn less than, Adam, get a load of this. According to the BLS, teachers earn less than painters, sanitation workers, gas station attendants, truck drivers, highway maintenance workers, ceiling and floor installation workers, home appliance repairers, travel agents, Paper hangers, I'm not sure if you know who those are. Secretaries, admin assistants, tire builders, dispatchers, stonemasons. I could go on for an hour. You know, there's tens of thousands of jobs listed on the BLS site, and teachers are making less than maybe all of them. And so, you know, if we look at the root of the problem here, it's hard to attract the cream of the crop coming out of college with a salary of 38000 yep. less than a gas station attendant. Or a dog walker, we were talking earlier about <laughs> about yeah, right. that. Or a truck driver, when they can get a job at IBM in the private sector, you know, making double or triple that at a college. You know, I think that you can make the case that you know the, the biggest problem in society is our underpayment of, of teachers. And when you compare this, when you juxtapose it to education systems in Finland or Sweden or Denmark, which are highly regarded as you know the the most um, stable and and most successful education systems in the world teachers rank in their societies as among the highest paid and teaching there adam is prestigious it's well respected it's competitive everyone wants to teach in finland so i think as as we as americans if we want to have that type of education system we need to start by paying our teachers better what do you think of that yeah, absolutely. The first thing that you point out is status. Uh so we'll definitely get to the financial piece, but simply put, I mean teachers are kind of marginalized right now and meanwhile they have this paramount role in society and you're right. Some of the other nations that have quite frankly leapfrogged us in educational attainment value their teachers. They get the best in their high schools and post-secondary institutions to teach and impart that knowledge to the next generation of citizens. So in part, that kind of explains why, A, our teacher workforce is shrinking uh, right now in pretty much every state in the country. There's a significant teacher shortage, and that's particularly problematic, especially in our under-resourced school districts, where they're, for example, pulling teachers right out of college, you know, idealistic, doughy-eyed individuals and they don't have any tools to be able to teach students who are undergoing some of the most significant challenges there's also an issue of retention i'll Mm. mention one step before we get into the pay you know the cutoff point is really five years 
there is a significant majority of teachers that after five years say, I'm done, this is too stressful, I haven't received the supports I need, I'm out. And then they go to one of those more lucrative private sector professions. You're having fewer and fewer teachers who are entering the pipeline and fewer and fewer teachers who are staying after five years. Mm -hmm. So one piece of the puzzle there is just simply status and perception. The other is pay. So state legislatures across the country have, as you may have seen it, as many folks may have seen, are rallying to get the pay that they deserve. And we see in, you know, last year in particular, Arizona, West Virginia, and assorted other states. We've seen it more recently in Los Angeles, Denver, Sacramento. Teachers saying we've had enough. We need to be validated and supported. And state legislatures are begrudgingly uh, issuing those three to five percent raises. Still a long way to go. Three percent of thirty-eight thousand guys is not much. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> so thinking about other incentives to support teachers and to actually, when we're looking comprehensively at a budget, allocating the dollars that teachers actually deserve for the role that they play. And it's just to know beyond eight to two or nine to three or whatever the hours are teachers are working far after to support after school activities teachers are grading over the weekend and when folks say oh you know teachers have that three month break i was just gonna say not not actually true it's more like three weeks and then middle of july you're in professional development you're preparing for the next year you're developing your curricula so teachers have if you're drawing straws the short end of the straw meanwhile as i said in terms of the role they play probably on par with those ER physicians where your life is in the balance. So that's uh, oh, I'm, that's why I'm glad to have you on here because I, I I think my perception was yeah you know they're chilling in June and July they're at the beach they're you know soaking up the sun but you're right as you said professional development activities in summer what about summer school don't some of them teach summer school yeah that's right and yeah. um if they're into you know if they have athletic commitments summer sports um but I do want to emphasize you know what you mentioned about status and I think that right now in America if you ask any kid what do you want to be when you grow up. Like, if, if you did a straw poll of 100, what, first or second grade kids, you'd probably get, like, what, doctor, firefighter, uh, kids want to be firefighter, astronauts. I mean, what did you want to be when you were five years old, six years old? <laughs> That's a good question. I so Should we ask uh, ask Cindy? Cindy I actually don't Cindy? know, yeah. To be quite frank, I don't remember my professional aspects. Knowing him, I think he probably want to be an author, a writer, or, or maybe, you know, he's one of the few, he's the exception to the rule. I could see him being like, I want to be a teacher, but for me, I wanted to be a lawyer, like, my whole life, and, you know, that's going to that's gonna happen. Yeah. But um, but I will say that I, I don't know about you, I just don't feel like teaching is on that pedestal where people would be proud to say, I want to teach. I don't know anyone that wanted to te- wanted to be a teacher when I was in school. Um, and I think th- that is the root of the problem. We need to make teaching the profession. We need the benefits to be outstanding. We need the, the respect and the appreciation. And we need to pay them. Mm-hmm. But I think when we do that, then you're going to have, instead of all these kids you know, rushing to, to law school or, or medical school, you're going to have people that, that are like, I can't wait to teach. I can't yeah. wait to shape the next generation. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I'll note, too, is it's also a question of expanding the perception of who can be a teacher. Right now, you've seen the teaching workforce. The majority of teachers are still white, young white women and actually older uh, over time. So we have a problem of diversity mm. and even in gender, quite frankly. There are fewer male teachers as compared to female teachers and uh, could go on about the diversity gap. So we're actually one interesting thing and then we can shift to our next topic. Uh, we'll be our student body is already majority minority. So basically, the idea that the majority of our student body right now is non-white. Meanwhile, only eighteen percent of educators are non-white. There are well-documented benefits that show a teacher of the same race as a student uh, has lasting uh, 
academic gains and positions and welfare success. So creating the idea that a teacher of the same race will understand a student's experiences and what they're going through in the classroom and outside of it and be able to provide them with the supports for success. So uh, when you ask uh, children that question, even as early as five, you're more actually very much likely to get uh, white women to, or white girls at that point to, to be say, able to, to say that you will not get young boys and you will certainly not get uh, boys or girls of color so it's expanding that definition of who can be a teacher especially when we have that demographic shift in our country so i never even considered the gender differences i mean so i don't know if, if you have data to support this you're telling me that i, I don't know if you want to ballpark um, what like three out of every four teachers are women in america uh, I don't want to hedge exactly. Yeah, because then, then we're going to report them, right? Yeah, Fake news. Well, no, no. The, the studies have shifted, and it certainly differs in every community. But I would say that's a general societal uh, you know, claim and what we see in the field. Because if that's the issue, Adam, I think we might have solved the education crisis on the podcast. Why don't we just attract more you know, stable, uh, established men, diverse men, men of all backgrounds – to teaching because then you know i mean if you think about it if we're not if we don't have enough diversity in gender we get more men in there that might that might be uh might, might be a short-term solution yeah easier said than done yeah. though, <laughs> um so i do want to talk about uh uh you know last note on education here the second question i posed at the open uh what what are we teaching kids right now and what could we teach them better or, or you know instead of I mean if you look at the subjects that are taught in high school today Adam most public schools are teaching social studies which encompasses world history US history science earth science chemistry biology physics um, English literature and writing composition math which includes geometry linear algebra you know algebra precal calculus foreign language maybe they'll take an elective like music or theater and some of the stuff I just mentioned might be useful like knowing how to read or write maybe basic math and science but, you know, do, do you want to tell me that knowing the intricacies of the Ming Dynasty in China or the derivative of 48x cubed is more important than learning, like, how to invest your money, for example? Yeah, no, it, it's a great question and one that we're grappling with right now, to be honest. I mean, there's a increasing movement, uh, I'll, I'll note it here, to learner-centered education. So the goal of education becomes less about you know, achieving these core content benchmarks. I mean, there needs to be, of course, a fundamental uh, educational experience. So basic literacy, reading, writing, basic arithmetic, uh, as well as some other core skills and just understanding your nation's history, for example. Uh, but then really from there, understanding a student's unique needs, interests, and aspirations and being able to structure the learning experiences to achieve that. So um, there are a couple of great examples across the country that are redefining what learning looks like or what school looks like, I should say, in the service of learning. So you have schools, for example, where students are in the classroom half a day and then the other half of the day, they're doing an internship, for mm -hmm. example, or uh, partnering with a business to address a local issue. You have others that are focused less on that assessment, to your point, and creating portfolios. Uh, so to be able to demonstrate, particularly if you're creatively focused, but really across subject areas, to be able to show here are the issues that I addressed and you know here are the skills that I achieved in a very tangible way uh, across my extracurriculars, across other experiences throughout the community. And then really creating a continuum where students are pursuing experiences that they're interested in in the service of learning rather than in the service of achieving, in some cases, very important skills. In other cases, you know, those abstract constructs that you mentioned. So let's go subject by subject. L let's get more specific here. Um, 
I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna name a couple areas that I think students should be learning about, and just kind of give me like a quick like agree or disagree, and okay. then and then you can you can add you can add things at the end. So I think kids should be learning um, how to invest their money. So background in finance. Yeah, financial literacy. Um, huge. career exploration. So how to find a job, either a part time job during school or after school. Yeah, I think that's true. There's also part of that is probably just. Again, in expanding those supports beyond teachers, for example, being oh, yeah, like count guidance counselors, becoming the jack of all trades, right? That's and a expand, great point. Yeah, and expanding that. Unfortunately, you have guidance counselors. The guidance counselor to student ratio is significantly higher in some of our most distressed schools. So mm-hmm. you have guidance counselors that have a hundred kids. So how do you uh, remedy that balance? So I would say that's important, but also to just elevate the resources at a school. Has. Okay, so we got finance. We we got a green light from Arab. Uh, Arab, short for Adam Rabinowitz, by the way, for. <laughs> For folks, so we got a finance, career exploration. He gave the caveat. Let's take some pressure off the teachers. Home economics. I mean, I don't even know if a lot of schools have that. How to cook, how to clean, how to. I mean, sewing maybe not so much, but oh, it's something I learned. I don't know if that. I mean, if students are interested in it, go for it. But I don't think it should required. be a one size fits all. All right, we get that. That one he gets a so so. Uh, learning about relationships and friendship. I, I guess that one's kind of like... <laughs> well, it's embedded in practice. So there's a movement, social-emotional learning. Yes. So it's integrating that ability to develop relationships, empathy, and have those collaborations. Embed that across your instructional practice. So you can do that in a social studies class, a science class, a math class. Create those collaborative partnerships uh, or those collaboration-focused activities, I should say, and to create context where students can thrive together. Okay, sex education? Yeah, I think that's important. Yeah. It's probably pretty prevalent in schools today. You right? think so? Like required curriculum? I think it's most a part schools? of most health classes. Oh, health, I guess health. Education. Yeah, you're right. I guess I guess health I didn't mention. Um, what about uh, dr- safe drug use? Yeah, I mean, I think we should just prioritize drug that. Drug alcohol use? Yeah, in health classes. I mentioned health and – or you mentioned health, health and nutrition. What about pop culture, sports, TV, media? Is that – Oh, I think media is especially important, uh, being able to navigate digital media, for example. Yes. That's a burgeoning career path, obviously, and to support journalism and other multimedia broadcast print professions. Um, and then uh, you might mention health, but just general, uh, specifically rather psychology and mental illness. Yeah, I think elevating that from an elective to a potential required class. But I do want to emphasize that the – Hopefully the movement that we're making today is to structure curricula that are not one-size-fits-all, but that are aligned to each learner's needs and interests. Um, are there any uh, areas of learning that that we didn't mention that you think kids should be learning about as a required part of the curriculum? I, mean, I think that largely covers it. Uh, you know, Again, just thinking about more thoughtfully embedding those social-emotional learning opportunities and to start to really think about how – Learning shouldn't be confined to the school building or nine to three, but to structure high qual an ecosystem of high quality learning opportunities. Let me act like a superintendent for a moment. Uh, let's say I'm sitting down with you and and you want to restructure the curriculum, and the superintendent says, "You know what? I'm willing to add a class on finance and sound investment. I'm willing to add a class on mental illness and psychology. Maybe a class on uh, home economics." What would you be willing to sacrifice? <laughs> Seriously, if you could just think it creatively for a moment, if you could take one or two classes off the curriculum that's already taught, you know, one or two areas. What do you think students are learning about that maybe isn't so important? Well, I wouldn't drop any subjects necessarily. I might just reconfigure the curricula. So to think about embedding financial literacy in mathematics. That's a cop-out. That's a cop-out. What are we taking out? We're taking out calculus? We're taking out earth science? I wouldn't eliminate core academic subjects. He's just saying that because his boss is listening. No, no. I'm fully serious as someone who— You think we need four years of math? Geometry? You think geometry and linear algebra are important? I do think you need a fundamental 
a mathematical basis. Even if I mean, eventually, you shouldn't force students, for example, if they're not going to be mathematically inclined, like, not to have them go through their entire high school trajectory, take alternative classes. I just don't think it's a uh either or proposition it's a yes and proposition okay i'll, I'll accept that i would i would have been <laughs> i would have been more specific i would have been like look you know give them one or two years of math like basic algebra yeah, so they can some kids do want to be in math and quite frankly there's a need for stem yeah, but uh, earth, i don't know about you but learning about tectonic plates and earth science i've never used that i've never used that the a lot of the earth science stuff and astronomy i mean it's important but Again, like it's a zero-sum game. We need to make sure we're teaching our kids the right thing. So we spent a lot of time in education. Um, just quick quick takeaways, and we're going to pivot to the next topic. Obviously, we covered a lot about the various issues. Adam spoke about the achievement gap, um, about the uh, teaching the test, focus on standardized testing being a prevalent issue, and, of course, us not paying our uh, teachers enough and affording them the respect and appreciation they deserve um, and alternative things that we should be focusing on on the curriculum. Adam, we're going to pivot to sleep. Any final, final notes on, on the education? No, uh, thanks for having this robust discussion and, you know, encourage folks to submit questions. Happy to address them and, you know, over the next few weeks. Maybe we'll get Adam's contact info at the end of the, the, uh, <laughs> at the, end of the podcast. So guys, um, I want to turn now to uh, a, uh, an abbreviated discussion on sleep. So Adam and I, um, I mentioned we went to college together. We really did not sleep very much. Uh, we used to, our shtick was we used to stay in the library till 2 a.m. when it closed and then we would go to the nearby campus center study room in the blistering cold um and you know we it kind of became like a friendly competition among us and our friends whoever could stay up the longest we had like different tiers it would be like if you stayed up till two it was like a, an unacceptable seth or something it was like you stayed up till four it was acceptable our friend henry fell asleep at 10 p.m so if you went to bed at 10 well he fell asleep once because he had a marathon and then the joke became if you went to bed at 10 or before 10 you pulled the henry um so it became this kind of uh like almost unhealthy um, fixation on staying up. And, you know, we did a lot of caffeine pills and uh, I got Adam hooked on coffee. Um, so, you know, my whole life, I've been a proponent of the idea that we don't really need to sleep. I actually, Adam, if you remember this, I wrote an article for the Brandeis Hoot, the throwback newspaper. Right there. Yeah, throwback um, on whether or not we need to sleep. So if you guys want to do some serious digging, if you go online, search the Brandeis Hoot, Ricky Rose, and see if you can find the article I wrote. Um, but, you know, I mean, what was your, like, general <laughs> take on all that um, before we, we get into, like, the scientific research? Yeah, sure. I mean, yes, probably I would not advise that for folks in college. I actually pursued a similar schedule uh, during my two years in graduate school, also working several full-time jobs. So I would often get three to five hours of sleep <laughs> any given night. I would uh, – try to restore myself basically on the weekends and sleep in but uh, i'm sure as you'll dive into sleep debt uh, it's not necessarily something you could just pay down in one shot mm. it accumulates and builds over time so it i've now fortunately shifted to a more stable uh, seven to eight hours sleep a night he's, schedule he's in bed at 11 o'clock and whenever i come visit him like i'm in dc uh, as we're recording this we're, we're staying out till 2 3 a.m it's the <laughs> longest i've stayed out yeah yeah um but guys just the first thing to mention is we don't necessarily know why we need to sleep it's it's really one of the least understood areas of human physiology I mean, we know that we need sleep, to Adam's point. Um, we know this because rats that are deprived of sleep die within two or three weeks, according to research done by uh, University of Chicago sleep scientists. Um, 
And we can't really do similar experiences on, on humans because we have um, ethical standards in psychology. But there was a study performed a couple years ago in the Journal of Neuroscience which found that a mere 24 hours of sleep deprivation would cause healthy people to have hallucinations and other schizophrenia-like symptoms. And Adam, we experienced a little bit of that in college when we would uh, you know, stay up for 24 or 30 hours during finals week and kind of like make our way back to um, our, uh, you know, our, our dorm room in, in the cold, kind of like yeah. in our um, almost like a drunken stupor. And it's something, sleep is something all organisms do, you know, albeit in very different ways. You know, horses, cows, and giraffes all, street, all sleep standing up, for example. Dolphins, um, as well as a lot of birds, utilize something called unihemispheric slow-wave sleep. And have you heard of this? It, it allows one half of the brain to sleep while the other remains awake so so that long nonstop migrations wow. are possible. Um, and bullfrogs, guys, bullfrogs are actually some of the only animals that can survive without sleeping for months at a time. So those bullfrogs would do well in college. Yeah, very <laughs> I'm just, resilient. I'm just saying, those bullfrogs would do well. So what do we know about the function of sleep? Because humans and all these animals are spending a third of their life force unconscious. Um, before we get into the science, Adam, do you have any initial thoughts on why and Adam, of course, doesn't have a scientific background. He can't be can't be a you know he's smart enough with education. Any initial thoughts on why you think the human body and and other organisms need to sleep? Yeah. So with the caveat, as as Ricky noted, that I'm not a sleep scientist, but I will say I think it's important from a restorative perspective uh, to allow yourself to have that physical restoration as well as your this cognitive restoration. So you know this idea. I think within humans, you know, you want these long REM cycles. So after three hours, it's a simple physical restoration. And after another three hours, then you get the cognitive restoration. So six hours is the bedrock. Theoretically, when you wake up to be able to be both physically and cognitively replenished. So, you know, shortchanging yourself in turn, uh, I'm sure creates uh, some issues and impacts on your day-to-day. And then there, I, as you've noted, and I'm sure well-documented long-term adverse impacts from sustained sleep deprivation. Absolutely. And and, and we're going to get into those. But I, I just want to I, I want to emphasize, we don't really know why we sleep. There's a number of theories out there, and I'm going to include, you know, the literature for all this. You guys know I'm not talking out of my ass. Um, the Harvard Medical Journal in particular has some great stuff on this. Let me go through the theories. There's four, um, and, and I'll go through them, um, you know, pretty as, uh, as briefly as I can. The first theory on why we sleep is called the inactivity theory, and it suggests that inactivity at night is an adaptation that served a survival function by keeping organisms out of harm's way at times when they would be vulnerable. So essentially, we developed the need for sleep through evolution, um, since animals that were able to sit, stay still and quiet during their periods of vulnerability had an advantage over other animals that remained active. But the inactivity theory is the weakest theory out there because essentially this is just saying that it developed over time through evolution. It's not really practical. We don't really know why. Um, so in, inactivity served a function by keeping us out of harm's way because we're vulnerable. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. Um, the second theory is the energy conservation theory, which is the primary function of sleep is to reduce an individual's energy uh, demand and expenditure during part of the day, especially at times when it's least efficient mm. to search for food. Um, so I'm sure you've experienced this, but obviously your energy metabolism is significantly reduced during sleep, maybe by 10% or more. Um, your caloric demand decreases as opposed to, to wakefulness. So it's, it's essentially you're trying to conserve it, um, to conserve your energy resources for the next day. Does, does that kind of make sense? Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, the third theory, which you actually fortuitously touched upon, <laughs> even though um, you, know, you hadn't seen the notes I had, 
is the restorative theory, which is the idea that sleep in some ways serves to restore what is lost in the body while we are awake. So sleep provides an opportunity for the body to repair and rejuvenate itself. Um, in recent years, there's a lot of support that these ideas have gained through empirical evidence con uh, conducted in both human and animal studies. And specifically, um, what we learned through these, these studies is that animals deprived of sleep will lose all immune system function and die in a few weeks, like those rats I mentioned. Um, and all of these uh, restorative functions like muscle growth, tissue repair, protein synthesis, gross hormone release, those occur during sleep. So, you know, if you're working out, we talk a lot about fitness on this pod, and you're lifting, they always say it's important to get eight hours of sleep because that's the period at which the muscle tissue growth happens. Um, and finally, the fourth theory, and I think the one that I subscribe to personally and the one that has a lot of traction in the scientific community, is the idea that sleep plays a major role in the brain's plasticity. Mm. Do, you, do you remember neuroplasticity from our psych classes? <laughs> A little bit. I think it's build, essentially building neural connection, new neural connections, correct? Exactly, yeah. yeah. So I, Adam and I uh, both, both studied psych for a while at Brandon. Briefly. So, be, yeah. yeah. Uh, plasticity is involved in learning and memory, as you alluded to. And one way that sleep may affect the brain's plasticity is through its effect on synapses, so the connections between neurons. And so research has shown, shown that when animals learn a new task, their neurons seem to strengthen the, the synaptic connections involved in learning that task during the next sleep cycle. Um, that's according to the Sleep Medicine Reviews paper. So in experience where researchers put a patch on one, uh, one of the animal's eyes, the brain circuits associated with vis visual information from that eye weakened within hours. Um, REM sleep, however, th uh, strengthened the circuits involving the other eye. So it's suggesting that the brain is using sleep to adjust to changing inputs. So that's kind of like why they say you should get a good night's sleep before an exam um, to, you know, ameliorate the learning process. Mm -hmm. Or if you've ever heard the myth that you should, you know, fall asleep listening to an audio recording of a book and you're going to magically oh. wake up having learned the book. Um, they say that all the learning happens when you're asleep. So those are the four main theories, guys, on, on what the scientific community thinks on why we sleep. Inactivity, that it happened through evolution. Energy conservation, that we're doing it to conserve our energy resources. Restorative, that we're trying to restore what's lost in the body, the muscle tissue, the, the repair, the growth. And of course, brain plasticity. Um, of those four, is there one that, you know, from a non-scientific lens that you might find the most compelling? Yeah, I mean, I think probably the third and fourth that you mentioned, so the restorative and the neuroplasticity theories make sense. It seems like the first two are more vestiges of evolution, so to speak, so I don't know how applicable those are today, but to think about sleep enabling us to build those neural networks and that having an impact on our uh, waking lives, I guess, uh, you know, that's certainly seems to make sense to me again based on my limited knowledge of cognitive development and then restorative theory is something i'm familiar with and uh i do think it's important yeah that your body is able to re recharge uh so to speak and you know i mean if you take sleep away if you want to prove or i mean you can't really prove but if you want to show the efficacy of these theories take sleep away and see are you able to learn right are you able to remember things are you able to have that that you know muscle growth and tissue repair is your immune system able to function so I think to Adam's point, you know, if you remove sleep from the equation, it really um, shows the convincing nature of those two yeah. theories. But something just to note, and you might get to this, is, I mean, there are varying notions of, I mean, sleep is almost like a personal issue. So there are long sleepers and short sleepers, so folks who need more than seven to eight hours a night and folks who can survive and thrive on 
uh, three to four hours a night. And then you hear with insomnia in particular and other sleep disorders, uh, you know, it's not like those people are inherently disadvantaged, but they do thrive. I mean, curious uh, to discuss and hear from you, Rick, on, uh, you know, how how sleep and the benefits of it apply to those that, you know, it doesn't come easily to. Yeah, and that's actually a great segue to, uh, to the latter part of the discussion on sleep, which is how much sleep do we really need? To Adam's point, there's no one size fits all. You know, you guys might have a friend out there who sleeps four hours a night and he's, you know, manic and jumping off the walls. You might have someone who's lethargic but sleeps 12 hours a day. <laughs> and there's no, you know, as I said, there's so much conflicting data on this. You know, some medical professions say you need seven, eight hours a night. Some people say nine to 10. Some people say that anything more than six is overkill. I mean, I've argued with this about many people. You probably have as well. The bottom line is there is no right answer. Um, I, you know, there are a lot of successful people out there that insist on getting a full night's sleep every night. Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, the richest man alive, uh, famously gets at least eight to nine hours of sleep a night. And he credits his success to being well-rested, which is you know ludicrous considering he's managing um, you know this this country that's monopolizing everything. Yeah, what do his days look like exactly? I I mean I don't know, but they probably either be begin late, begin early, and end late, end early and begin early, or he's sleeping a lot. Okay, Matthew McConaughey, Jennifer Lopez, even the Dalai Lama—they all get eight hours of sleep every night. And these are highly successful people, Adam. But on the other end of the spectrum. You know, how, how are these names? These are successful people who are able to get by with n- little to no sleep. Benjamin Franklin famously said, he, he's the one that uh, coined the, the phrase, you can sleep when you're dead. He got four hours of sleep a night. Abraham Lincoln, he slept for a couple hours a night during the Civil War. He was in his 50s. President Trump, 72 years old. We'll talk about him in a moment in the, in the, the political segment. Sleeps three, three to four hours a night. Um, Richard Branson, the CEO of Virgin Mobile, five hours a night. Theresa May, the prime minister of the, of the UK, she's you know five hours a night. Angela Merkel, German chancellor, four hours a night. Um, and Adam, as, as you can attest to, you know we, and you mentioned this earlier, we slept three to four hours a night in college on the regular. Yeah. I think we ended up okay. <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I'd like to think so. But yeah, I, it's probably particular for each person. It's something you adapt to as well. Uh, I think, you know, by necessity, more or less, you know, I'd get four or five hours of sleep and still hopefully seem like I'm thriving in my various applications, schoolwork, etc. So it's not an ideal. It's something I think you can be resilient and adapt to over time. And uh, ultimately, I mean, it's not surprising to hear those names. I, I can't imagine how they have the time of day to be able to get eight to nine hours a night, given the national and international issues they're grappling with. But um, I think it's something that if you have to, and if you have to resort to it, your body can adapt. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, as you alluded to, a lot of this is genetic. There was actually an article in the Scientific American recently that I'm going to link in the details section. It talked about how a rare genetic mutation can allow some people to function with little to no sleep. Um, So that's certainly important to to mention that, you know, you, you posed the question earlier, how are some people able to get those restorative benefits and others are not? Genetics are certainly a factor. Um, but to be fair, you know, right now we are a tired society. I mean, everyone's yawning. Everyone's falling asleep at their desks. Everyone's taking naps during the day and drinking tons of caffeine um, to stay awake, which, of course, I subscribe to. I had that back on episode um, 10. So it is a fine line. I mean, if you think about, you know, uh, if you just bear with me for a moment, if you think about, like, the function of, of technology and electricity when it was invention. Uh, invented it used to be the fact that when the lights went out the power went out you went to sleep you just followed the you know the the sun in terms of setting your days but now with technology and electricity guys people are staying awake for 24 hours a day people are staring at the blue light from their cell phones into the wee hours of the night um so 
you can make the case that it's harmful. You know, these things are harming our natural circadian rhythms. Um, so it's definitely a fine line. Um, and I think, you know, it's important to realize that if you are making the decision to stay awake, whether it be for work or school, what have you, stay hydrated, drink water, drink. If you're, if you're going to use a stimulant, drink caffeine, stay away from all the other, you know, drugs, things you could be putting in your body. And of course, exercise helps as well. Um, Adam, any final thoughts on sleep? Yeah, I mean, I definitely subscribe to the drinking tons of caffeine uh, camp, uh, more of preference as well. But, you know, speaking on both sides, I mean, I've weathered three to five hours of sleep for years at a time. And right now I'm on the more recommended, I guess, seven to eight hours of sleep a night. Uh, you know, as I said, I think sleep, is, there's no one size fits all recommendation. And I think it's personal to each individual. In some cases, it's forced. In other cases, it's chosen. But uh, I do think it's important to, you know, try to shape the sleep schedule that best suits your needs, work style, etc. <clears throat> Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I didn't mention this, but also just like the alarm clock, guys. The alarm clock is so unnatural. They say, technically, they say you're supposed to wake up naturally every day. Like when your body is ready to wake up, you should wake up. I don't know about you. If I went to bed, I usually go to bed at 2 and wake up at like 8 for work. I'd probably wake up at like 2 p.m. without an alarm clock. <laughs> I, my, my body is so fatigued that I would probably I, – I, I couldn't do it. Well, isn't there the notion that your body subscribes to a circadian rhythm? So the idea – like right now, for example, you know, I wake up for work at 7.30 every day. Even just like if I were to go to sleep at 2, for example – I'm not sleeping much past nine o'clock because it's so counter to the circadian rhythm that I follow. Your habit, what you're used to. Yeah. For sure. I mean, it's just, I don't know. I'm so sleep. I mean, Adam, Adam lived with me, so he can tell you I am the heaviest sleeper. I don't care if the alarm is going off under my ear for hour. My roommate, Ian, could, could tell you as well. Literally, you know, I could be, I could be laying in the bed fast asleep and there could be bombs going off and <laughs> Like, think about how many times you used to, social psych used to knock on my door. Yeah. This guy's such a good friend. Freshman year, he used to walk across campus just to wake me up for our 9 a.m. psych Admittedly, class. Admittedly, it was close to the psych class. Yeah, so well, it was, it was on the way. Downplay it a little bit. But I couldn't wake up when, you know, my alarms were going off or whatever. So I would leave my door unlocked and Adam would come in and just shake me awake because <laughs> I was so comatose. Um, so maybe I am kind of sleep deprived. Maybe I should take my own advice. But yeah, I mean, there's certainly a, a lot of different um, information out there. So make sure you do your research on the different theories of sleep and, you know, figure out what works for you because your friends might be able to get by with five or six hours, but maybe you need, maybe you're like a, uh, a Jeff Bezos and you need those nine hours a night. Um, so I know, you know, I know the, the other segments were pretty lengthy, but I do want to get in a discussion of, um, of politics. The, the 2020 election is a year and a half away and the Iowa caucuses are less than a year out They're February of 2020. Um, and I want to talk about what Democrats need to do to unseat Trump and who the candidates are to watch. Adam, obviously living here in DC and working as an education consultant with many folks on the Hill, you know, you're, you're going to be the, um, you know, the, the, the resource, the go-to guy for this discussion. So let me, let me shoot the first question at you. The other day, CNN ran a poll of all the prospective 2020 Democratic nominees. Um, I'm going to see if I can pull this up for you to look at. But, uh, you know, as you can see on the poll, um, there's uh, former Vice President Joe Biden, um, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, California Senator Kamala Harris, and Congressman Beto O'Rourke. They're the, four, the top four candidates uh, Biden is polling at 28%, Sanders at 20%, Kamala Harris at 12%, and Beto O'Rourke at 11%. Do you, 
Do you see these as the four horses in the race, um, or do you think anyone else on this list is going to emerge as you know a front runner for 2020? Yeah, great question. And uh, I guess fitting that we're doing this segment since we're steps from the Capitol right now, actually. Literally, he lives right by Capitol Hill. It's amazing. Yeah. But uh, anyway, to speak to some of those other names, of course, those are the ones that are well-discussed. I I do want to flag and probably get to this, a particular problem for Democrats, as has been well-documented in 2016, was not tapping into those Midwestern states uh, in particular, and uh, actually quite a large contingent of Obama voters who shifted to Trump in light of being displaced in the economy and not seeing a promising economic future. So I think paying attention to some of those Midwestern candidates, uh, there have been you know plenty of stories that show Bernie and uh, Joe Biden at play in the Midwest, but also to consider uh, the Amy Klobuchar's of, of the world. I mean, Pete Buttigieg, who uh, is... On the outside looking in, and I don't know if he would be a viable contender, but he does uh, speak to that constituency very well. And then uh, there are some of those other names that you've heard. We'll see if they make it. Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, etc. And Elizabeth Warren, I should say, of course. And from the Republican point of view, Adam, um, if you're a Republican, I mean, there's not, there's not many of them out there, but if you're a Republican, who would you want to face in a general election? Who do you think that, you know— President Trump would do well against one-on-one in a general, and who do you think he would have the most trouble with of these of these candidates? Yeah, well, I will say uh, I read a, a recent article last week that showed the Trump team is actually most concerned with Kamala as a contender because she kind of has the same charisma and as the same poll as Obama did back in 2008. She can command the rally. She's uh, incredibly articulate and eloquent. I mean, no one can really argue with her credentials. Of course, there are many skeletons in her closet as well. There are a couple. With her criminal justice policy as San Francisco DA and California Attorney General, so there are those hurdles to clear. But I will say it seems like the Trump administration is bracing for uh, a Harris run. Uh, the other scenario on the flip side, I think an individual like Elizabeth Warren would have a lot of issues uh, with Trump, and I think Trump would be eager to have that race uh, just because, I mean, uh, the rollout associated with her Native American heritage, which ruffled quite a few... Uh, and what was funny about that is she actually released her like Native American DNA, this was like a month ago, and the Native American community, I don't know if it was Cherokee or the Iroquois Nation, actually said like, like they were offended. They were like, look, you know, are you really going to die on this hill? You should just walk back your statements. And they're essentially saying that just because she has DNA doesn't mean she has, you know, physical ties to the heritage. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It was offensive. Exactly, yeah. And then also, I mean, she has the same progressive policies as Senator Sanders. uh, But, I mean, there are the multimillionaire tax, the uh, breaking up the big tech companies. I mean, those are pretty alienating uh, policies. So, uh, you know, Trump may be eager for a Warren run, and it seems like either Kamala or Amy Klobuchar, just because she plays to that Midwestern demographic, and no one can dispute that, you know. And let me let me just one more thing on Warren. I think Adam she would struggle with the same problems Hillary Clinton had, which is relatability yeah. and likability. She did an Instagram story. I don't know if you saw. Which it was her. I think she was drinking a beer. Yeah. It was it was very funny. If you haven't seen, it, you should watch it. It was her. I think she was taking a page out of the Ocasio Cortez handbook, trying to do like an Instagram live, and she was having a beer like. She's on there. She's like, oh, I'm just, you know, wanting to me. And it just looked so, it felt so unnatural. Yeah. It was like she was trying to be like, a, a, you know, an average, like an everyman, but that just doesn't fit her. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I mean, her persona is a long established college professor, or I should say Harvard Law School professor. So it's the academic who's running. I mean, it's hard to dissociate from that uh, 
brand that she's built. So you obviously, you know, think that Kamala Harris um, is is a decent bet. And, you know, this podcast will be around next year so we can play it back and we'll see if she's even still in the race a year from now because you never know what could happen. As you said, skeletons in the closet, family issues, you know, people could drop out. And you said Klobuchar potentially, and you think that um, Trump would, would you know, is, is chomping at the bits for Elizabeth Warren. Um, you don't see, you know, uh, Vice President Biden as a serious contender, even though he's he's got a significant lead over the rest of the competition? Yeah, I think, well, a couple of things. One, he, he will not be able to run away from his age, of course. So he's actually taking some pretty, I mean, based on New York Times reporting from last week, taking some pretty radical steps to consider, naming a vice presidential candidate early or even going so far as to commit to one term uh, in wow. light of his age. So those would be steps to try to assuage a broader voting block that, you know, Biden, given his advanced age, that... Uh, you know, it'd be a safe bet to, to vote for him, basically. Um, you know, something else to note, I mean, we all know Biden as Uncle Joe. He kind of had the bro persona with uh, President Obama. But uh, and of course, no one can dispute his national security credentials, especially as Trump alienates so many of our world leaders on the world stage right now. Mm-hmm. You know, Biden is regarded as that resource and that stable rock uh, even to this day. But, you know, he also back in the 1990s and earlier in his Senate career, has had some difficult, uh, more moderate and centrist positions that as he builds up this progressive platform, he'll have a lot of these statements from his Senate days uh, kind of crop up to, to counter that. And to your point about uh, the shift from um, the shift over to moderate in the general election, you can see now with, with um, you know, the fervor over Bernie Sanders, which is obviously always going to be there, and, and, and uh, Ocasio-Cortez, a lot of people are, and even Andrew Yang to a lesser extent, a lot of people are jumping on the progressive train. So a moderate like Biden might have a little bit of difficulty with his messaging yeah. in a primary election. And you see that in every primary, right? You know, folks go all the way left or all the way right, and then they have to go back to the center. But Biden might not be able to to contend with that, especially when, you know, you look at Bernie Sanders, who his numbers are on the rise. He was at 14% a few months ago he's up to 20 percent is he a threat i think sanders is certainly a threat i mean the one distinction i like to make sanders gave hillary a run for money in 2016 but he owned that entire progressive lane now he's jostling for a piece with as you said an increasing number of candidates that are trying to lay their stake on the ground when it comes to progressive policy so mm-hmm. that's sanders biggest challenge is whether he can reclaim this uh, you know, his original base, which was massive, is now kind of being spliced into these various, like, fiefdoms, so to speak. Fiefdoms. The diction on this guy. In, in, the, the English, the future English teacher in another life. So, yeah, so, so I mean, interesting, interesting how, the lay of the land from you there. So, Kamala, uh, Klobuchar, potentially Biden, and then um, they're not too worried about... Um, about uh, Elizabeth Warren, potentially Sanders in that picture as well. So, you know, as a strategy question, Adam, how should the Democrats approach the, you know, the, the, the campaign against Trump? Because if you look back at 2016, you know, he promised his voters the, the moon uh, with his agenda. And, you know, he really hasn't achieved anything that he set out to do. Um, yes, he delivered tax cuts for working class Americans. He did drive ISIS out of Iraq or Syria, or at least he takes credit for it, and did dismantle part of Obamacare. But most of what he promised, Adam, he has not done. You know, number one, he said he would build a border wall, make Mexico pay for it. Do you see a border wall right now? Because I don't. Um, Two, he said he'd deport every one of the uh, 11 million undocumented illegal immigrants. Hasn't done that. You know, three, he said he'd abandon NATO. He pulled back on that. And four, do you remember, you know, everything he said about the country's crumbling infrastructure? That was a huge point for him. Didn't do anything at all. So, you know, should the Democrats stoop to Trump's level, get in the mud with him and, you know, stand up to his language and rhetoric? 
Or should they just really talk about his record as president? I definitely think it's the latter. Uh, so actually, if you follow the House's playbook from the midterm elections, they were super <coughs> laser focused on health care and those, uh, I guess, kitchen table issues, I believe the phrase is, but the kitchen table issues that Americans are talking about. The last thing they want to do is to try to savage Trump, talk about impeachment, how, uh, which, whether, I don't know, uh, you want to make those claims or not, there's certainly merit, you know, his morality, his disposition as president, but those are not productive conversations. Folks want to know how you are concretely going to support them advance in this changing international landscape and to assure that they have, you know, well secured, well-positioned leaders who are also preserving those international relationships and America's status on the world stage. So I think, again, focus on the uh, kitchen table issues and less about, like, personal attacks on Trump, which, you know, you talked about Warren and some of those other folks. I know they're chomping at the bit to do it, but that's not necessarily the (laughs) most productive approach. And, I mean, to your point, like, look, guys, let's just be honest. His voters don't care. I mean, he could do anything. The guy, yeah, as he said, he can shoot someone in fifth. That's what Michael Cohen said. He can shoot someone in Fifth Avenue, and that would make a difference. I mean, the guy, the guy has, has, has erred to no avail. I mean, you know, everything he said about women and, you know, folks with disabilities and, you know, uh, minorities— his, his voters just don't for what for one reason or the other his voters just don't seem to mind so to adam's point fo- you know democrats should focus on his record what he hasn't delivered which is mm-hmm. i mean pretty much everything um so th- i think that's an important thing to note and you know you alluded to this a moment ago when you talked about specific states um i'm curious to hear your take on how the changing geographic map will affect the 2020 election you know, in the, in the 2018 midterms, you saw the Democrats took three vital battleground states that sealed Trump's victory in 2016 in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. In Florida, felons have regained the right to vote. That's a, a million Floridians, most of which will vote for a Democratic candidate. And as we've seen in a lot of presidential elections since 2000, that could determine an election. Um, so what do you think, you know, these changing developments since 2016 will do for the notorious swing states? Well, I think you're seeing a concerted shift to Midwestern states, knowing that uh, that was kind of the Democrats' downfall in 2016. You know, Hillary notoriously didn't visit Wisconsin and Michigan uh, in the final week. So, uh, you know, certainly Democrats are going to be paying very close attention to that. And you've seen that from a lot of the presidential candidates making deliberate Midwestern swings. Uh, Milwaukee was named as the site for the 2020 convention. So clear nods to that to assure Midwestern voters we're here for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that might be a key to success for the eventual nominee. And it might be on the ticket, if not a presidential (coughs) candidate. They'll certainly try to speak to that a little bit on the vice president presidential side of the ticket. But I think you really need to focus on those Midwestern states again, Wisconsin, Michigan, those that have traditionally been in Democratic territory but were ceded to Republicans in 2016. Florida is always dicey, of course, as is Ohio. But as you said, there's a positive development in Florida that might potentially tip the scales for Democrats. But continuing the, you know, grassroots approach in those states and uh, creating a solid electoral infrastructure will be pretty key to uh, success for the Democrats in 2020. And on the notion of Florida, did you read the report that the governor is, is, is a raising a couple million dollars in order to um, get you know get out the vote against Trump or for the Democratic nominee? I think Andrew Gillum. Mm. Yeah, Andrew Gillum. Um, yes, uh, his, uh, was it, red flag policy? I, I, I just found that interesting. Usually if folks like assemble like a political action committee or a fund, they're running or, they're, or endorsing yeah. someone. He's basically saying, look, I don't care who runs against Trump. Just vote, vote not Trump, which yeah, is right. very funny. Um, well, caveat to that though like 
you have folks like Howard Schultz who might run as an independent. So voting for a third party candidate splits the vote and might create an opening for Trump. So I'd issue a little caveat. And there. we haven't talked about Schultz um, or even Mark Zuckerberg. There hasn't been a lot of noise about Zuckerberg. Do you remember when after the election, Mark Zuckerberg did like, a, of course, the, the, the CEO of Facebook, he did like a... a a trip around the country, um, just speaking in different cities, and people were like, oh, he's readying himself for a, a presidential run in 2020. You haven't heard a lot of noise on that. I don't know if he's no longer interested. And then Schultz, the Starbucks CEO, very divisive um, individual. As Adam said, that could you know prove to be pretty significant, as you see historically with independent candidates tipping the scales. And last year, in 2016, a lot of people think that the the never Hillary voters, the, the you know supporters of Senator Sanders that didn't vote, they sat out the vote, they delivered the vote to Trump. So that's a factor as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then the third party, I mean, historically, you look at Ross Perot in 92. Ralph uh, Nader. And Ralph Nader. So there are those third party candidates that can come back to haunt the Democrats. So uh, I guess something to think about. And ultimately, you see the splintering of the Democratic Party between the centrist block and the progressive block. So can they unify those in time for the election? The centrist block, the progressive block, and then the Andrew Yang block. The, the Yang gang, the $1,000 of universal basic income a month. I would have I would have mentioned him, but to be honest, he's, it seems like he's fading. So I'm so, I have a couple friends out there who are very big fans of the Yang gang with the pink hats. So unfortunately, it doesn't look like that's that's happening. Um, you know, I, I also I want to mention one last thing, Adam, is there is opposition to Trump in the GOP. You know, you have Senator Jeff Flake, Senator Bob Corker, deceased Senator McCain, others um, have criticized him quite a bit. Um, you know, John Kasich as well, uh, Mitt Romney, just elected senator. Do you think that we might see someone challenge Trump for the GOP nomination? And if they do, do you see them, you know, being successful? I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, there's never really been a case. Well, actually, uh, I mean, there have been presidents that have been challenged in convention, but have never like formally been unseated so uh that's just i guess except lbj in 68 mm -hmm. but uh you know it's it, long story short a tough precedent to overcome uh, you do see those rumblings i mean flake formally forced uh, like swore off the fight uh but you do see folks like i mean william weld already in i don't know what his staying power is larry hogan actually one of the most popular governors in the country and mm -hmm. maryland is thinking about gearing up for a run and you mentioned sass romney and that contingent as potentially throwing their hats into the ring look i think trump's going to be the eventual nominee you can't dispute that institutional standing and the power of the presidency but um you know it might be beneficial kind of uh create some divisive uh, news for him and inflict some wounds or at least force him to spend some money heading into the general. I, that's, I mean, that's two amazing points that you just like inserted in there like it was nothing. Uh, even if even if he is challenged and nothing comes of it, it pub, the public perception of the GOP is affected that, that you know, uh, there's no unity. And that, that could be a factor for a lot of folks who are conservative who just want Republican candidates. And as you said, it forcing him to spend a lot of money. Um, so it is it is really important to consider the impact of that. And let's be honest, Adam, he's 72 years old. Do you think he wants to be president for another four years? No. He just wants – it's his dignity at stake. It's his ego. Well, he, he doesn't want to, you know, lose his, his position. Yeah, he wants to do the victory lap again and – of trying to burnish his self-perception that he's the greatest president. We'll in be history. seeing the tweets, you know, uh, the biggest inauguration for a reelected president ever, the biggest, you know, electoral college victory. I mean, he does. It's it's he might as well as soon as the election happens, might as well just 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 sit it out. Here you go, you Pence, you take a. Would he run with Pence? I think that's inevitable. I mean, Pence you has been so? his cheerleader throughout the process of this first term, and 
basically Pence's his liaison to the more traditional block of the party. I think Trump recognizes his value. I don't see any changes. I mean, sometimes, you know, you never know what could happen. I mean, behind closed doors, maybe Pence submitted that mysterious op-ed. To the uh, to the New York Times. Who knows? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, definitely important to note that there may be some opposition in the GOP, and of course, uh, as we're here in D.C., there was some news that broke recently that um, the special investigation by uh, former FBI head uh, Bob Mueller was just submitted. Do you see this impacting the 2020 election at all? Well, I mean, you can level an indictment against a sitting president. So I don't think you're, unless we see some drastic revelation uh, in the weeks to come, uh, you know, I don't think he's going to be impeached. I think Trump will claim it as a rhetorical victory that, oh, you know, it was a witch hunt all along. Uh, there were no charges against me. This is, see, I was right, basically. I could see the tweets now. L- literally, literally, Adams was reading the tweets. Yeah, right, right. I, I have a crystal ball. But um, no, basically, I think if anything, the impact will be in perception. So Trump as a, a wounded candidate and making it a little more difficult for some of those swing state voters to be able to stomach a, a president that was kind of mired in that controversy. And even if he does ultimately uh, get exonerated, more or less, in the special investigation report. They're ongoing uh, at the state and district level, I believe. Criminal uh, cases. Yeah, Southern District of New York. Uh, there are cases against him, so this issue won't die necessarily. I think it'll be kind of the bugaboo that, uh, you know, senators and uh, representatives will bring up. The hell is bugaboo? <laughs> Some of the words Adam uses, um, not on my level. I mean, and your point about not being able to indict a sitting president, technically, I learned today, there's nothing in the Constitution that says that. It just would be, it'd be like excessive entanglement if he was indicted that would impede his ability to, to serve his executive role. Um, but I will say he could be technically charged, uh, indicted or charged once he leaves office. Um, and it's amazing to me how bulletproof this guy is because if you think about it, everyone in his circle, you know, has been charged, has lied to Congress, has come before Congress, has been arrested. You know, FBI, their homes have been raided. Um, all this this collusion with with Russia, whether or not he knew about it or not, and this guy is just going to skate. It's um, it's I it's I mean, his lawyers must be must be pretty proud of themselves. Yeah, right. And he never even had to speak. He never even had to do an interview. I mean, if he the lawyers were saying. Please, dear God, keep this guy with – because if he said anything, anything that contradicted his prior statement, he would have been cooked. So it's a victory for the lawyers for sure. But to Adam's point, uh, you know, maybe will not affect the 2020 election. Any final thoughts on either the Democratic or Republican side of the 2020 election as we're less than a year out from the Iowa caucus? Uh, I mean, I think we covered it largely, but it'll be interesting to regroup a year from now and see where we're at, given this field of, what, almost 20 uh, Democratic candidates that are in the fray? It's like 20, 30, you know? So it'll be interesting to regroup and see where we're at a year from now. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, So definitely covered a ton of topics. I mean, this is... You know the long, longest episode we've had of Nervous Habits so far. So just to kind of um, you know uh, regroup here, make sure we got everything. We talked about education, the issues plaguing um, the education system, of course, uh, treatment evaluation of teachers, standardized tests, and the you know curriculum focus. Uh, as we said, potentially integrating new new ideas in there. The different theories of sleep, uh, restorative energy conservation, um, and neuroplasticity being the most compelling, and of course the the fact that there's no one size it's all approach to how much sleep you need. And 2020, Adam pegging Kamala Sanders as the one to watch for the election. Uh, sorry, Elizabeth. Sorry. Kamala, <laughs> sorry. Kamala Klobuchar. No, no, Kamala, Kamala Harris. Uh, Amy Klobuchar. 
No, no, I, you said Sanders. I was. Oh yeah, that. no. So that's how I know we're at we're at an hour and twenty minutes in. Uh, Adam pegging Kamala Harris and um uh as the one to watch, unfortunately for Pocahontas. Um, and uh, as we said, strategy question for Democrats, um, making sure that uh, they address Trump's record, um, and the potential controversy, lack of unity in the GOP. Any final, final thoughts on this podcast, Mr. Rabinowitz? No, uh, I think we covered a lot. Just want to say thanks for having me on the show and uh, excited to see some of these upcoming episodes on the docket. Uh, absolutely. Next week, guys, I am pretty sure we're going to have an in-depth conversation on death. What is death? What does it mean? Why don't we ever ponder our death? Why do we distract ourselves from our mortality we're going to be diving into one of my all-time favorite books to better understand death and how we think about it. It will be an intense, morbid, dark, and unsettling conversation, and I'm here for it, guys. That's going to be next week on Nervous Habits. Adam, thank you so much again for joining us on, on this week's episode of, of Nervous Habits. Um, you know, Adam and I obviously are both very talkative, very effusive, have a lot to say. Uh, so I don't know about you, this conversation could probably have gone on for another another hour and a half. Yeah, it definitely could have, but hopefully uh, folks get a lot out of this conversation and I'm um, looking forward to doing it again. For sure. Uh, feel free, guys, to, to message us on, you know, if you agree, disagree, have any opinions, comments, or questions on, on what we talked about, uh, email me at nervoushabitspodcast.gmail.com, nervoushabitspodcast.gmail.com. Um, follow me on Facebook at Nervous Habits Podcast. Adam, um, do you, I don't know if you want to share your contact information if folks want to get in touch with you. Uh, you can share it in the comments section. I mean, it's just A, my last name, R-A-B-I-N-O-W-I-T-Z, 720 at gmail.com. Happy to address any questions on the education section, uh, probably in particular. I mean, I might defer on sleep. Dear Adam, <laughs> I, I had a question on your scientific case on sleep. But yeah, buddy, you know, longest episode we've had by far. Both of us are very talkative. Great, you know, uh, great rapport, of course. The the two former hosts of sports with Rick Rab, um, Gold Sport and Stewart. Um, so obviously, you know, not surprised that this episode has gone on and jock full of stuff. We'll probably, you know, we're gonna go off the air in, in two seconds, and we're probably gonna be continuing to expand upon these conversations. So thanks again for for joining us, guys. Thanks for listening, and stay nervous. <laughs>